Red button's on. All right. Now we're being recorded. This evening what I'd like to do is to center our attention upon this particular study entitled The Accursed. In the Bible there are people who are described and are put in this category of the accursed. And so what I'd like for us to do this evening is to simply try to answer this question. Well, who are these people? Who are these people that would be given by the Lord this label of accursed? Before we do that, we need to make sure that we understand what the word accursed, two different words that are used in the Greek. Let's understand what what it means to have this as the classification of these people. One of the words that is used, and it's a word that has kind of been transliterated into our language, and that is the idea of anathema. Thayer says that that particular word is a thing devoted to God without hope of being redeemed, and if an animal, it's to be slain. Therefore, if you put that into context of a person, it is a thing that's doomed to destruction. There's another word that's used in the New Testament, and it doesn't really carry any better meaning to it than anathema. That word means to curse or to doom or to imprecate evil upon, according to Thayer. Vine says it is to pray against, to wish evil against a person or a thing, hence to curse. And so you can look at the last two words of both of those definitions, destruction and curse. And our English word, our English definition, certainly continues to follow that same thought. Being under a curse or being doomed. Doomed to destruction. Destined for destruction. To be cursed. So the question then is, wow, who are these people? Who are the ones that are going to be accursed? Someone might say, well, that would be the heretics. Those who would teach something that goes off of the rails of truth. That would, that would be an opinion is what the idea of heresis is, is, the idea of an opinion that that goes astray from the truth, that would lead one astray from the truth, that one would live their life and they would be living it according to a lie, that they would be expecting to receive heaven and only to find out that what they had believed was, was heresy, wasn't, was never the truth. They're the ones, Right? that are the accursed. Or maybe it would be those that we would think of in the realm of uh, morality. Those who are sensual. Those who are immoral. Those like in, in Sodom and Gomorrah who just live by their senses. Whatever the sense tells them, whatever their lust, whatever their desire, whatever their passion is, whether it be with men with men, women with women, or whether it be uh, someone that is not my wife or not my husband, and so they just, they just give themselves over to any kind of debauchery, any way in which the, the flesh might want to fulfill itself, that, well, surely those are the accursed, right? Or what about those that just, there's nothing that is beyond the realm of possibility or the realm, the realm of attempting in order to get more money 
And so we find that a lot of times in God's Word. We find it in reference to stealing. We find it in reference to being a thief. We find it in reference to the idea of extortion, wherein someone is going to, I'm going to cheat you and get what belongs to you. I'm going to cheat you out of that so I can get that. I'm going to rob you of that which belongs to you. I'm going to swindle. I'm going to, I'm going to deceive you. And I'm going to get what belongs to you, but I'm going to do it by deceit. Well, surely these people are the accursed, right? What about the ungodly and the, and the unrighteous? Nothing in their lives that, that they uh, look at. There, there's no way that we can say, well, deep, deep down there's something good. There's, there's, a, there's a level of righteousness in there. They're, they're, they're ungodly. They're unrighteous. Well, surely these are the accursed, right? And you'd be correct in thinking that because that's exactly the individuals that we find recorded for us in Second Peter chapter 2. We find those that are heretics, those who would believe in heresies and that would bring the heresies. In fact, that's really what chapter 2 is about. It's about those who have brought heresy, those who have brought false doctrine. And so it's, it's a, a parallel really to the book of Jude in that here are individuals who have come and who have taught a false doctrine and so you need to be wary of them. And when you read the book of Jude and you read the, uh, the second chapter of Second Peter, they pull no punches about what they think about individuals who would come in to present that which is not the truth. That is heresy. In the describing of these men, Peter describes them as being central, as just being governed by their own senses. They're immoral, they're greedy, they're ungodly, they're unrighteous. And so Peter said, what of these individuals? He says, these individuals are accursed children. They're accursed. So we're not surprised by that, are we? We're not surprised if we were to be asked, well, who would you say would be worthy to be considered in a category of men that are destined for destruction, that are to be cursed by God? Yep, that'd be my list. And you'd be correct, but it's not a complete list because there are some others. There are some others in God's Word that God says are accursed. And so these are the ones that we want to look at this evening. Ones that maybe we might not have put on our list. And so take your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. I've got it on this slide. If you'd like to read it off of there, but if you've got a particular version that you read from, you can certainly go to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And notice that the, this is the last few verses of what the Apostle Paul is going to write to the church in Corinth. And he says in verse 21, The greeting is in my own hand, Paul. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Maranatha, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all. In Christ Jesus, amen. And so here is accursed. Here's our word. And here's a category of people that we didn't think about earlier. If anyone does not love the Lord, he should be classified as being devoted to destruction and one who is considered to be cursed. Someone might say, oh, well, of course, I should have known that. 
because in Mark chapter 12 and verses 28 through 30, we learn not just in Mark's account, but that's just the one that I'm using. In Mark's account, we learn that this concept and this idea of love, that it is the foremost of all commandments. At least that's the way that Mark words this question that was asked of our Lord. One of the scribes came and heard him arguing and recognizing that they were that they had answered them well, asked him, What commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And so, well, of course, those who don't love the Lord, those who don't have that love, those who don't have that foremost of all commands, well, of course, those who don't do that, they would be on the list of accursed. The only problem with that is, that's not the same word in 1 Corinthians 16 and 22. It's a different word for love in 1 Corinthians 16 and 22 than what's in the book of Mark. In Mark chapter 12, this word that is the word for love is the word that we typically think of when it comes to the matter of love, the word agape or agapeo, that particular word. And that word has the, the idea and the concept of to have preference for or to wish well, to regard the welfare of someone. Think about it, and probably the best illustration of, of how this love is different than when we think of love and every, probably every country western song and rock and roll song and pop song that ever had anything to say about love, it's probably strictly from an emotional standpoint, not this word. Look what is stated in Matthew chapter 5 when our Lord talks about this word in reference to an interesting group. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. I say do you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For it causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do you even, don't even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So is that like warm and fuzzy feelings? Is that what we're talking about in Matthew chapter 5? Do, 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 I, do I have an emotional pull and tie to that one? Not, not, not even close. What that word in that text is, is look, in spite of how you treat me, in spite of what you do, in spite of your attitude toward me, I'm going to think of what's best for you. I'm going to do what's best for you. Even though you wouldn't have that toward me, even though that wouldn't be the, your direction and your thought and your attitude toward me, I'm still going to do and think about what would be best for you. Even though if the shoe were on the other foot, you wouldn't do that for me. And so I choose to do what is the best in the best interest of my enemy. But that's not the word in 1 Corinthians 16 and 22. It is not the word agape. 
It is actually the word phileo. And that's a different word for love. One of the definitions said that it is properly to show warm affection and intimate friendship characterized by tender, heartfelt consideration and kinship. Does that kind of make you step back and say, wait a minute. Those who don't have warm affection and friendship and tender, heartfelt consideration, those are the ones that Paul said are accursed. I could go with you on agape. I could see why those who refuse to think of others and put others first, I can go with you there. But this seems a little strange for Paul to to use this word for love as the word to describe those who are going to be accursed. Well, let's look at John chapter 11. John chapter 11 and verse 36. We see this same word used, and it is generally we think more about verse 35 because if you're into trivia, then we all know that, well, John 11 and verse 35 is the shortest verse in the Bible. Like that's ever going to be really important for us to know. But that there it is. But the next verse, and all of this is in reference to Jesus finding out that Lazarus has died. The next verse is when Jesus comes and he hears about what has happened. He comes, he sees Lazarus is dead. He weeps. And so it says, verse 35, Jesus wept. And so here's what the Jews take on it when they look at Jesus. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved, phileo. See what affection he had toward Lazarus. In spite of the fact that Jesus was about to raise him from the dead, Jesus had affection for the fact that his friend had died, had gotten to a point of sickness and died. Think about this word that's used over in Titus chapter 3 and verse 15 or, or another passage wherein this word is used. In Titus chapter 3 and verse 15, it's this phileo love. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Paul, final words to Titus. He says, Titus, I want you to greet them for us and all those who have a warm feeling toward us, that devotion and the friendship and the kinship toward us. Well, we want you to, they greet you as well. But when you think about that, this, this is the word that's used. What is the difference between these words? And how is it that they play off of each other? And I like what Linsky says. When he said, phileo means liking and affection and personal attachment, while agapeo is much deeper. The love full of intelligence and true comprehension, which is thus also directed by true and lofty purpose. I really like the way the New American Standard Exhaustive Concordance said, agapeo love really is intentionally love. I'm going to love you in spite of what you do. My intention are, is, is to consider your best interest at heart. Where phileo is to have affection, 
toward, to be affectionate, if you will. Does this not cause you a little bit of problems? And you think about this, like, okay, well, I can understand why, why Paul would say, those who refuse to put others first, those who refuse to have others as their primary, primary goal and always do what's best for them, I can see why they would be accursed, but to command an affection, to command a devotion, that seems like a strange thing. And to say, and if you don't have this emotion, if you don't have this devotion, then you're considered to be accursed. Linsky says, whoever lacks even this lowest, cheapest type of love is, of course, hopeless. Mere affection prompts us to do many worthy things. It's motive enough to impel us to desist from what displeases the person who is cherished by such affection. If we lack even this affection toward Christ, our hearts are cold and dead indeed. Mike Willis in his commentary said, The man who is not stirred emotionally by the story of the life, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ as the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world is beyond reach and hence anathema. Make some valid points there. If I can't even get the cheapest of cheap loves in in regards to the overall scheme of love, if I can't get that, phileo, how am I ever going to get the higher agape love? How am I ever going to get there? Whoops. Blacked out my screen. So the question then is, how do I achieve this type of affection? How is it that I feel the kind of love and I acquire the kind of love that Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 16? Well, God's word is a good place to start. And there are a couple of passages that I think that's the very point that's being made. At least it is an indirect benefit of understanding that passage. I think in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul begins that paragraph in verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God. And I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us. So that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. Now, all through this book, Paul is going to have to defend himself against those who have been attacking him, his character, his apostleship, his integrity, his motivation. He's, having, he's going to have to defend himself. And he's having to do this because the Corinthians are listening to the critics and evidently beginning to be persuaded by them. And so Paul says in verse 13, For if we are beside ourselves... It is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, and therefore all died. 
And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Paul says, if you think that we're beside ourselves, if you think that we have, have, have just kind of gone a little off kilter here, said if, if that's the case, let me tell you, we, we are of sound mind. Let me tell you why we are driven to act like we act and do what we're doing. Because it's the love of Christ controlling us. Because we've concluded there is one who died for all. One would do that. Would die for all. And he died for all. And he died for all so that we might no longer live for us, but live for Him. So you can look at my actions and you can say, Paul, you've kind of gone off your rocker here. Paul, you've kind of gone off kilter. Paul said, well, I'll tell you what, we're not beside ourselves. We haven't lost our, our marbles here. We haven't gone crazy. I'll tell you what motivates us, why we are so passionate, why we are so driven. It's because we think about the fact that there was one who died for all, and that's exactly what he did. And so that fact means I don't live for me anymore. I'm committed emotionally and devoted completely to this one who died. In Romans chapter 5, Paul has been describing the process of justification. He has talked about the fact that all need justification. He has given an example of how that it was justification by faith and that the very Jews that had been complaining against him, that their very forefather understood and that he himself was justified by faith. And so then he says in verse 6, For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. I think we take too lightly, or we fail to appreciate the gravity of our situation, Maybe as second and third generation Christians, we don't feel the blight of sin as those who have come out of the world. Maybe because we were raised in the church, it's kind of caused us to feel like, well, we really weren't ever really that bad. Now, the world would really be in there. And so in some way, we, we, we feel like, well, we were kind of, you know, worthy. 
then we're going to struggle to have the kind of devotion and the emotion and the love that Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. There is no way that I deserve to receive what I have received and what I will receive. And that thought should cause affection for me for the Lord and devotion to Him. And if I can't get there, brethren, I'm not going to get agape love. And that's what Linsky was saying. If you can't get the cheapest of it, you're sure not going to get the ultimate. You're not going to be able to acquire that. You know, we have songs in our songbooks. You've got songs, songbooks in front of you. We have songs that remind us of this and that's trying to pull from us the, the understanding that you do not deserve to be where you are at. We have songs like, I stand amazed. When you sing that song, is that the emotion that you have? I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus, the Nazarene, and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. For me it was in the garden that he prayed, not my will, but thine. He cried with tears in his sorrow and sweat drops of blood for mine. He took my sins and my sorrows and he made them his very own. He bore the burden of Calvary and suffered and died alone. When with the ransom and in glorious face I at last shall see, t'will be my joy through the ages to sing of his love for me. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my Lord. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. That's what Paul's talking about. If that doesn't move you, then, as Linsky said, you're dead. You're dead in heart. Or in the supplement, one of the favorite songs that I have in the supplement is one in song number 102. And we have another one that comes through E-Choice. I didn't put that on the slide, but this was one of the ones. And can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? Died He for me who caused His pain for me who scorned His perfect love. You left your Father's throne above so free and infinite your grace. Emptied yourself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Boldly I come before your throne to claim your mercy, immense and free. Nor greater love will e'er be known, for, oh my God, it found out me. Amazing love. How can that be that you, my God, would die for me? Amazing love. How can it be 
that you, my God, would die for me. You sing that blandly, dully, with no emotion, then you're going to be struggling. That doesn't mean that we need to have some sort of emotional experience like so many denominations want to have. But brethren, I'm afraid that we've been so afraid of being too emotional that maybe we've taken all emotion out and we've lost what Paul is asking us to try to achieve here in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Ellicott in his commentary for English readers said, The word here used for love signifies not merely affectionate regard. So there is a tugging, a pulling, but personal devotion. It's not just emotion for the sake of emotion. It's not, uh, well, I need to well up and every time I sing this song I need to have a box of Kleenexes with me. It's not that idea. It's the fact that my emotions are pulled toward my God which caused me to have a devotion for Him. Spiro Zodiati said in his lexicon, said, however, this is the only verse where Paul uses the verb phileo to befriend. The verb phileo comes from philos, friend, and a friend is a person who shares the same interests as someone else and demonstrates that friendship in his attachment to that person. Why is it that you have the friends that you have? You share with them an interest. You share something with them. It is affection, but more than mere affection, this idea of phileo. It is affection which prompts devotion to, and then what does that do? Gets me to agape love, where I put him above all else. Brethren, nothing must replace this devotion. When we go to Matthew chapter 10, it's a familiar passage. It's Matthew chapter 10 and verse 37. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Do you know what love is being described? What word that is? It's not agape. It's devotion. It's phileo. He who is more devoted to his family. He who is more devoted to father or mother than me is not worthy of me. In fact, in John, in John chapter 12 and verse 25, if I'm devoted, phileo, not agape, phileo is the word for love in John chapter 12, if I am devoted to my own life, he who loves his life, Loves, phileo, is more devoted to protecting himself. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. I'll confess to you that when I was studying this lesson and was doing this, and, and I, I almost didn't look up the word for love in 1 Corinthians because I just knew that was agape. And I was shocked when I looked that word up and I'm like, wait a minute, that's not agape love. That's phileo love. Took a little bit of time to figure out, okay, well, how is it that these mesh together? And I think we've described it, hopefully, that to lack this affection and emotion that pulls us to devotion, that causes us to put all of everything else aside and put him first. I can see why Paul would say, well, if you can't get there, you're not going to get to agape love. To lack this love or to replace it with a different recipient causes one to be accursed.
But there's another group that we need to look at. And that's the group that's found in Galatians chapter 1. In Galatians chapter 1, and verses 6 through 9, familiar passage of Scripture, Paul says, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we said before, so I say again now, If any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. What are the results of this different gospel that we find in the book of Galatians? Well, the results of this different gospel, and the reason why they were going to be considered to be accursed, is because it would mean that they had deserted Christ. Look at what he says in verse 6. I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting Him. You're deserting the Lord. What? For this different gospel. So, if you accept this different gospel, and whoever brings this different gospel, that person who brings it is to be accursed. But if you accept that, you're deserting Christ. You're nullifying the grace of God. Verse 21. Chapter 3 and verse 1. The only reason that you would accept that gospel is you must have had this idea of bewitched is the idea of to cast a spell. There must be some reason why you're not thinking straight. Maybe a spell's been cast on you, and that's why you're not thinking straight, because nobody would accept that which is being brought to you over what you've already received. And then in chapter 5 and verse 4, he says, If you accept this other gospel, then you've severed yourself from Christ, and you have fallen from grace. So, what was this different gospel? I mean, those are some serious consequences, right? You've deserted Christ... You must be bewitched. You're not thinking correctly. You've fallen from grace. You've, severed, you've been severed from the Lord. So surely this must have been like the destructive heresies which brought swift destruction that Peter describes in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1, right? Or maybe like those who say that there is no resurrection for the dead. You see, in that passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then that completely changes your worldview. I mean, that... You've got a completely different worldview now. If there is no resurrection from the dead, then in that text about verse 29, Paul says, why are we suffering? Why are we risking our lives? Why are we, we acting in this way? If there is no life after death, that there is no resurrection, why are we risking our lives all the time? You know what we ought to do is we ought to just eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow it's all over. That's a drastic different worldview if there's no resurrection. Well, I can see that that gospel, if that's the gospel that was being brought, yeah, that, that completely changes your worldview. Yeah, they ought to be accursed. Or maybe it's like what Hymenaeus and Philetus were saying is, no, 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 resurrection has already taken place. It's already happened. Nothing to look forward to. Well, that would change your worldview. Or maybe it's like those who taught, like Jezebel, who taught the servants of God to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. Go ahead and engage in idolatry. Go ahead and engage in immorality. 
and no repercussions. I can see if that's the doctrine, if that's the gospel, yeah, I can see why they're accursed. But you probably already kind of figured out that's probably not what's in Galatians, and it's not. What was the other gospel? The other gospel that was being proclaimed in the book of Galatians was the obtaining of special or the observing of special times. He acknowledges that in chapter 4 and verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years. And then in chapter 5, verses 2 through 4, their reception of circumcision. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, who you are seeking to be justified by laws. You have fallen from grace. That's it. There's no immorality there. There's no alternate worldview, no concept out there that causes one to completely change the way that one views life and the decisions that they make. That was it. They had distorted the gospel of Christ by virtue of this observance of special times and bringing in a circumcision as that which was necessary for salvation. I mean, there's much more to it than that, but we don't have time to go into all of that. And that they were, what was at stake was the truth of the gospel. What was the issue? (laughs) Well, that's a whole series of lessons as to what was the issue with the Jews and bringing in circumcision. But let me just say, state for the purposes of our lesson this evening, really the thing that they did was they added something. They added circumcision. Yes, you need to do everything that Paul is saying and that you need to, you need to believe and you need to repent and you need to be conf- and confess and you need to be baptized and then you need to be circumcised as a sign of the covenant because that's always been the sign. And so they added that. They added circumcision. Even though, as you look, if you're still in the same place where I am, Even though in chapter 5 and verse 6, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. Circumcision was nothing. But they said, nope, it's something. And we're going to add that. I want you to think about the fact that when you add something to that which is described as being perfect, then you can understand why those who do that are referenced as individuals who are to be accursed. Romans 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The perfect law of liberty, James says in James chapter 1, and verse 25. The revelation that had been given to John, if you add to it, then the plagues of this book will be added to you. If you take from it, then your name will be taken from the book of life. So I want you to think about something. Thus to add one single solitary item distorts that which is perfect. One simple addition and you're accursed. Adding circumcision opened the door for other additions. 
the Jews wrestling with the, with the idea of well, we are the people of God and we have had the law of God. And so for the Jews, their concept was salvation comes through us. So yes, we have no problem with all of these prophecies about that God is going to call the Gentiles and God's going to call other people, but God's going to call them through us. And so they can have salvation so long as they become a Jew and then they can have salvation. And so to become a Jew man, you had to be circumcised, which is a sign of the covenant. And Paul said, that's not how it is at all. Adding circumcision opened the door for other observances and other additions, like the observing of days and observing of months and seasons and years. I want you to think about this in reference to just an application, just one application. You know, adding a distinction between bishops and elders opened the door to other organizational changes culminating in the establishment of the Catholic Church. Where did the Catholic Church come from? Well, someone made the decision that, you know what, we ought to elevate one of the elders above all of the other elders. And we're going to call him the presiding elder, but that name eventually got changed to bishop. And so we're going to have the bishop And he's going to be the one that's over the elders. And then someone said, you know what? It'd probably be a good idea for all of the bishops of each local church to meet. And you know, it'd probably be a good idea to have someone among the bishops be appointed as over the bishops. And so here we go. Organizational structure, another one, and another one, and another one. And generations later, we had the Catholic Church. We've had that happen in the Lord's Church today. We look around at the, the fact of what some churches who call themselves Church of Christ and we look at what they're doing and what they're teaching or what they're not teaching or what they're engaged in and we say, how in the world do they get that far? Well, about 70 years ago, they made a choice or two about just adding one thing to the budget, adding one practice of eating in the building. They added one thing. And the problem is, once you start adding things that were never there to begin with, then it's like, you probably got the same statement around here, you know, once you open the barn door, you lose control as to what comes out of the barn. You can't control that anymore. And so, here is why this adding is a problem. Because one addition to truth is one step toward apostasy. And it may seem so innocent at the time and so helpful and so beneficial, but one addition to truth is one step toward apostasy. And so one simple addition and you are accursed. Consider that removing something required for salvation, in our minds this definitely qualifies for something for someone being accursed. But adding something which God says is nothing, in our minds, it doesn't seem like a big deal. But God will cause one to be accursed. Adding something which seems innocent enough, in our minds, doesn't seem like a big deal. But one step away from the truth is one step toward apostasy and thus accursed. Sometimes we argue with brethren and they, and they look at us and say, well, why are you making such a big deal out of it? It's just, and there's the problem. That's the problem. 
And what we have done is we have sowed the seed, we have cracked the door open just enough, and while our conscience may not allow us to go further, then where we have cracked the gate, the next generation will open the gate a little bit wider. And the next generation will open the gate a little bit wider. And finally, generations down the road, we will look and say, well, how did we get here? It's because of all the way back here, one generation cracked it just a little bit, added just one little addition that wasn't found, one simple addition, and you are accursed. Again, remember Revelation 22, 18 and 19. Well, let's look at one more. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 41. Here is the judgment scene depicted for us. And we are told that in verse 41, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, enter the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. You know, in real estate and in business and a lot of things, the, the three most important things is location, location, location. And one of the things about uh, buying another house is the, one of the first things that you do is, well, what does the neighbor's house look like? Do I really want to live next to that? What does the neighborhood look like? I really want to live in that neighborhood. These individuals, I want you to notice that it said they are the accursed ones and we are told by God that they go to a place that's actually not really been prepared for them, but they're going to get to be put in that. The place has actually been prepared for the devil and his angels, but these are so accursed, they're going to be put in there too. Wow. Who are these people who deserve to live with the devil and his angels for eternity? Someone say, well, the sinners. Now, you'd be right. Revelation 21 and verse 8 acknowledges that. Someone say, well, all those who are unrighteous. That's right. God's wrath is going to fall upon them. Paul tells us that in Romans chapter 1, 18 and 19. Those who have persecuted God's people as they've striven to, to live righteously, that they have not tried to take advantage of others, they've tried to help others, they've tried to encourage others, been a benefit, they've loved their enemies, and yet they get persecuted, they are mistreated. God says, I'm going to have vengeance upon those who have mistreated my people. Yeah, they, they, did. they deserve that. But you know, none of those are in this text. None of those are in this context of Matthew. It's not that, that these people aren't going to receive and be accursed. They are. But that's not the people in this context. Who are these people in this context that we're talking about? We'll go back to our text. Because they're going to be, they're going to be asking the same question. Why are we there? For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they themselves will also answer, Lord, 
When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to the one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Did not take care of you. People who fail to care for their brethren. That's who's in this context. Not the immoral. Not the sinner. It's brethren who were too busy taking care of themselves to notice that their brother is sick that their brother is hungry, that there's a stranger that could be taken care of or naked or sick or in prison. And there are going to be individuals who are going to say, but but, no, Lord, if we would have seen you, because that's what Jesus is saying, you saw me like that and you did nothing. Oh, no, if we would have saw you, Lord, we, we would have done something. And Jesus says, and so he acknowledges the fact that those who are in this condition, they weren't the sinners. It wasn't that, well, you failed to love your enemy. That, that's not the people. He said, he acknowledges that the people that they ignored were some of those, the least of his. They were his people. They were people that were children of God serving him. But some of God's people are too busy with themselves to notice that other of God's people are in need. That was it. They didn't love their brethren. How serious does God take that? The fact that in this passage we go to it so often describe the fact that there's going to be a great day and that day is going to be there's going to be a dividing and there's going to be those on the right and those on the left and those on the right are going to hear this and those on the left are going to hear this. Those on the right are going to hear it come and those on the left are going to hear it depart. And so we talk about that. But do we recognize that the context of that is actually set brethren being divided from brethren because of the fact that they did not take care of one another. It's not brethren being divided from the world. It's brethren being divided from brethren. There's a division there. In 1 John chapter 3, we'll hit this and then the lesson will be yours. 1 John chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. This should be interesting. That's what I'm looking for. What's the litmus test between these two groups of people? Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not from God, nor the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. You know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need 
and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Sometimes I think we believe, I'm praying for you. I'm not knocking that. I'm praying for you. I'm praying that things improve. I'm praying that you can find some food. I'm praying. That's fine. That's good. But is that just the word and tongue? Notice that he says, let us not love with word or with tongue, but indeed. That's fine. Love with word and tongue, but also love with deed and truth and action. Because if I fail to act, I'll be divided from those of God's people who didn't fail to act. John chapter 4, or 1 John 4, verse 7. By the way, I didn't mention, but notice who we're likened to. Cain, uh, verse 12. Notice the sin that we're guilty of, murder. Pretty serious when God says, I want you to love your brethren. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent His Son, only His only begotten Son, into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. He who has seen God at any time, if we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. It's amazing the time, time and time again that John says, if you don't love your brethren, you don't understand God's love. If you don't love your brethren, you don't understand what's been done for you. Wow, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, I think the Lord told a parable about that. Uh, to a, a great debt that had been forgiven, but the one that had, had that forgiven turned to one who owed him and said, Now, demand, I demand that you give me what you owe me. He had no understanding or appreciation for what had happened. That's exactly what John's talking about here. You have no understanding of God's love. You have no understanding of what you have received if you can't give that same love toward your brethren. Verse 20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. I want you to notice what brethren were willing to do for one another in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 12, or chapter 10, the Hebrew writer says, but remember the former days. Now what he's trying to do is he's trying to get them encouraged to, to, to stop this returning. You've got something better. You've got a better promise. You've got a better covenant. You've got a better priest. And so don't return. You're, you're losing your passion. You're becoming dull of heart. So don't lose that passion. Let me tell you, what you need to do is you need to think back to when you had that passion. And what were you willing to do when you had that passion? But remember the former days when after being enlightened you endured a great conflict of sufferings. So how did this happen? So he says, well, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulation. Partly by virtue of the fact that your faith 
that you made known was reproached for. You were reproached for your own faith. But also, notice the next thing, but partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. It may not be that their faith had become evident to the authorities that they were with this group that the, that the government is persecuting. But as soon as these brethren said, our brethren are where? In prison. We need to go and bring food to our brethren that immediately identified them to the authorities that, aha, here's some more of them. And now they risk themselves. Notice what he says in verse 34. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. What did they do? They went to prison to do what Jesus said some weren't doing. They went to prison to take care of their brethren. And what happened? As a result of trying to do good, they got their property seized because they got identified with those that had been thrown into prison. And so he says, But you joyfully accepted the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. And so, if we fail to care for our brethren, the Bible tells us that we'll be accursed. The accursed, yes, they are the heretics and the sensual and the immoral and the ungodly and the greedy and the unrighteous. But there are also those who don't phileo, have an emotion and devotion to the Lord. There are also those who add to God's law. And there are also those who don't care for their brethren. And so, the accursed, are you numbered among them? If you're here this evening, your life is not what it needs to be and we can help you make it right. Let us know what we might do. Come forward while together we stand and while we sing our song. When would the Savior we enter?